everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm Molly Herford. And I'm Peter Glassford. So this week's episode is actually super fortuitous. Uh, Sometimes the stars kind of align perfectly when we're in a place. Uh, As most of you know, we spend a lot of our time on the road, and this episode is actually recorded in Pittsburgh. Uh, What we didn't realize was the woman that we were interviewing was also in Pittsburgh. Uh, So... We got to uh, have sort of a unique opportunity. Uh, we were talking to the people who started, actually Terry Lachlan, who founded the Total Immersion Method of Swimming, and swimming instruction in particular, along with one of his master coaches, Suzanne Atkinson. Uh, but we were at a cyclocross practice where I was giving a nutrition talk when one of the women came up to me after me talking about nutrition on bikes and said, oh, I'm a distance swimmer. Do you have any advice for nutrition in that? And I started to tell her that the next day we were going to be doing a podcast with people who knew a lot more about swimming than I did, and I would be sure to ask them. To which she replied, oh, I'm a total immersion coach as well. Uh, So Peter jumped right in there and managed to hook up with her for a swim lesson the next day. So not only are we talking about how to get into swimming this week, uh, we get a lot of Peter's own experiences swimming from this week. So listeners from earlier in the show know that actually in our first episode, I believe, you talked about how your goals were to get better at swimming. Mm -hmm. Are you getting there? Yeah, I think so. It was quite helpful. You know, we've been in the pool, you know, probably five, six times maybe since that first episode. We haven't certainly not been weekly, but we've uh, when we've had access to the pool in Collingwood or I don't know if we've really been on the road very much, but... We've been in the water a bit. Um, actually, on this latest trip, we were in the ocean a little bit, which for me, just being in water is really a, 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 a help to my swimming. He did very good. So, yeah, we were able to camp there in Virginia Beach and do some beach runs and stuff. So, in addition to that, we were swimming. That's right. We've had kind of a crazy week with this. Yeah, so, indeed, I think I'm getting better at swimming. But uh, definitely the having some total immersion help was was good get some hands-on they had like different cues and see the drills in person and sort of see them applied to yourself was really really cool and so we have some video that we're going to link in the show notes and um you know getting to talk to terry who's the founder of the method the author of the book total immersion uh was was quite quite cool and as molly says just everything lining up in pittsburgh made for a really really cool trip to pittsburgh and everything was cool so much coolness a lot of coolness (laughs) so Anyway, uh, we hope you enjoy this episode with Terry Laughlin and Suzanne Atkinson. Hopefully you get a little bit out of, out of it with how to improve your swim stroke and how to get into swimming. Actually, Peter has now stolen uh, Terry's phrase. He refers to swimmers as adult onset swimmers for people who are just getting into the sport. And I think this is Peter's new favorite thing. He can't really stop talking about it. Yeah. Yeah, he's got a couple good terms for sure. He's a, and that was really a lot of my interest is this crossover between the movements, but then also the coaching. So mm-hmm. definitely being able to talk to Terry, who's seen you know thousands upon thousands of athletes trying to t- swim and you know coming from different sports and triathletes trying to get better. You know, just some of the words he uses um, and just the methods he's sort of boiled things down to over the years is very very interesting to see. Absolutely, and we'll see more of how Peter's swimming's going as you know time goes on. But for now, enjoy this episode with Terry and Suzanne. All right, welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. We're here today with Terry Lawlin. Am I saying it right, Terry? 
Lachlan. Lachlan. Terry Lachlan, who is the author and creator of Total Immersion Swimming. Um, and then we also have Suzanne Atkinson, who is also a practitioner of the Total Immersion Method. Um, Suzanne's based. Suzanne is a master, a master coach. A master <laughs> coach, and she's based in Pittsburgh, while Terry's based in it's New Paltz, New York, right? That's correct. Awesome. Um, and Molly and I are actually in Pittsburgh this weekend, uh, or this by week, this week by coincidence. Um, and we actually connected with another uh, TI instructor, or I connected with her this morning, so I actually got in a lesson just ahead of this podcast. So have a little more perspective now, now that I've, I've read the book, I've sort of followed along a little bit for the last year or two, and then, you know, been able to go. So I, I'm really excited today, really psyched on swimming right now, uh, made some progress this morning, so I'm excited to just sort of pick the... <laughs> Terry and Suzanne's brains here. So welcome, Terry and Suzanne. Thanks. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Molly. Yes, thank you for taking the hour and to talk with us here. Um, what I thought we'd start with then is uh, just sort of can you give us a quick uh, sort of your backgrounds, your uh, in education it can be specific to swimming, but also if you want to add anything about your, your education generally, that would be super. I always like that just to get a perspective on how practitioners and coaches get to where they are. Shall I start, Suzanne? Yeah, go ahead, Terry. Okay, so I first tried out for a swimming team in eighth grade, my Catholic grammar school, and uh, I was the only one cut, so not an auspicious beginning. Um, and then the that summer, after after I failed the failed the tryout, uh, I decided to try for the Red Cross fifty mile swim card, and I did that two summers in a row, and discovered uh, discovered that long-distance solitary swimming really agreed with me. I, I, I enjoyed just having the purposefulness of having uh, a, a goal every day when I went to the pool to uh, basically swim a mile a day. Um, and uh, I think I turned myself into an okay swimmer. Um, not efficient, not by any means efficient, but at least comfortable in the water. And then uh, when there was a tryout for a brand new team that my high school formed when I was in 10th grade. I, I made the cut, was not a very distinguished swimmer. I never made the league championships in the New York City Catholic High School League. And you have to be a pretty slow swimmer not to make your league championships in high school. <laughs> then I, I did better in college. I went to St. John's University and finally had the chance to swim for a professional coach. And I was, um, I, you know, I, I progressed a lot, um, but still, by by the end of uh, my time there at St. John's, I was still only swimming in the consolation finals of the of the league championship, uh, and I had uh, gotten the idea that I was limited uh, because I worked really hard. I I my idea was just to work as hard as humanly possible and to outwork every other swimmer in the pool, and I, I think I did. But I, I still didn't make much progress toward becoming a good swimmer and saw other people who didn't seem to work as hard as me swim much faster. And I had, had the idea that there was some mysterious ingredient that people <laughs> call talent that I had not... Uh, had not won the lottery on when I was born. And uh, so then I became a coach. I was, I was offered, uh, offered a coaching position right after college. And 
at the age of 21, I was the youngest head coach in the NCAA, coaching at the U.S. Merchant Marine, Merchant Marine Academy in Kings Point on Long Island. And I discovered in my first year of coaching that I was I had a far greater knack for helping other people swim fast than I seemed to have for doing it myself. And so um, 40, 44 years hence, I'm, I'm still coaching. The other milestone in my in my uh, coaching was I, I coached from 1972 to 1988 in club and college swimming. Uh, and then I started total immersion in 1989 and began working with what I call adult onset swimmers. And it was when I was working with people who really liked skills or water sense or uh, even a basic sense of comfort in the water that I, I really had to become a, a, a much more effective coach. I was forced to learn really how to teach and coach uh, once I started working with people who did not swim right out of the cradle. Um, and that turned me into a Kaizen swimmer myself. So after leaving college with a fixed mindset that I can only be good as the poultry talent I was born with or thought so, um, once I started working with adult onset swimmers and saw how much they could improve, I started to adopt the Kaizen mindset, which is that no skill is ever fixed or static, but is limitlessly improvable. And I, I kept working on my own skills while discovering what to teach to others and using myself as a guinea fish for that. <laughs> and uh, kept kept getting better. And between uh, then at age 55, I won a, my first national championship and actually broke a national record for the 55 to 59 age group in open water swimming. And um, while well, I'm 65 now and feel like I'm still learning and still pursuing improvement. That's awesome. That's awesome. Some really cool terms there. I, I love that. And definitely the, the coaching method that you've created is very interesting to me as a cycling coach. You know, you, you've done a great job and I, I love, you know, and really relate to that idea that there's always improvement to be made. A lot of times people want it to be, oh, I've, I've learned swimming, it's done. But there's always, <laughs> you know, or they've, always, they've learned cycling and it's done, but there's always, you know, more skills. Yeah, yeah. People, people, one of the you know, I sometimes say that our our most um, sternest competition is from the stroke called good enough. <laughs> <laughs> that people, you know, have a stroke they think is good enough to get them through their daily mile or whatever, and, and they have no idea how much better it could be. I have a pretty good idea. Mine can get a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you probably discovered a little bit of that in your lesson this morning. Yes, but amazing how much progress. One, just getting coaching, you know, just having someone, you know, we got the, the camera was out there and, you know, Deb was in the pool and it was it was really cool, you know, and just to be able to actually get feedback on, um, you know, what I was doing right and what I was doing wrong and, you know, slowing mm -hmm. things down, right? Like that's the one thing I really like about this method is, that you know we're we're working on floating and positioning and figuring out how to not make my feet touch the bottom of the pool you know because <laughs> I, I'm not you know streamlining at all um, yeah so yeah how so, to be weightless in the water yes um, and we'll get into more of those drills as we go on why don't we let Suzanne here just tell us sort of her path to becoming a it was a master coach 
Uh, yeah, thanks, Peter. Um, I just want to say that it's, it's a really an honor for me to be on this podcast um, alongside uh, Terry, who uh, who invited me. Um, I've learned so much from um, working directly with Terry and the TI method, and I liked how Terry presented his story as kind of a parallel between his own personal swimming and his coaching. Um, so I'll, I'll try to do the same, but keep it pretty short. Um, I started swimming, um, I think it, when I was five or six years old, we, we moved to, uh, to Pittsburgh and joined the summer swim club. And when I went, um, I do remember learning to swim and I was terrified. Uh, I remember being thrown into the deep end. Um, I went home crying most days and it wasn't until I saw, um, three-year-old Benji Yar swim all the way across the deep end that I finally was able to do it myself. I thought, well, <laughs> that kid can do it. I can do it. Um, so I, I do remember learning to swim and it was kind of a struggle, but I really loved the water. I loved going to the pool and I think I was there every day in the summer when I was little. And, um, when I went to join the, uh, summer swim team, um, I cried the first day and they sent me home and said, well, maybe you should try again next summer. So, uh, I, I did gain enough confidence and I ended up being on the swim team from age seven to, uh, age, um, 14 or 15, I think when I just got, uh, tired of, um, of the cold splashes in the morning and the amount of work. And I uh, was never really fast. Um, I did enjoy the butterfly event of all the other strokes. And uh, most other kids were not interested in, in practicing or trying the butterfly. So that kind of became my go-to stroke for the team. But then I took a long break from swimming, uh, maybe for 10 or 15 years. Um, as far as my coaching um, experience, when I was in um, high school, I started coaching the volleyball team. And the reason that that's pertinent is, be, is because volleyball is a, a sport of, um, of technique and strategy. And uh, as a teenager, uh, it, it was a summer league volleyball team. And I was put in a position where I could watch and observe um, from a coach's perspective with the help of our head coach. And so I started to pick up um, teaching tools and teaching ideas. Uh, after I graduated from college, I immediately went to work for Outward Bound School. And um, if anyone's not familiar with that, it's a program. There are schools all around the world, but uh, we take wilderness environments and use them as a classroom to learn all sorts of skills, both physical skills, um, survival type skills, interpersonal skills. And a lot of that is technique based as well. You know, how do you paddle a canoe? How do you put on a rock climbing harness? How do you build a campfire? So this idea of, of skills teaching and incorporating it into the way each individual learns best has been um, something I've been practicing since I was a teenager and it was my first job out of college. Um, to get back to swimming, uh, I, be I became a, I did my first triathlon while I was doing my residency in emergency medicine. Um, and I had back surgery that resulted in uh, a lot of deconditioning and some weight gain. Um, and after about two or three months, I uh, lost some weight, got a little bit stronger. And I went to the pool for the first time because my, my surgeon had cleared me for that. And I got in and the very first lap I swam, you know, and again, this is after um, seven to 10 years of competitive swimming when I was little, um, I had back pain and neck pain. And I thought, well, this isn't right. I just had surgery to fix this. And here I am doing this exercise that's supposed to be really good for you. And my neck hurts and my low back hurts. So I went to, uh, to work and discussed it with one of our attendings. And he gave me the total immersion book, probably the one that you just read. So I took that home. I went out. I um, Actually, he gave me the DVD. And I went and found the, found the book somewhere. I read the book once through. I watched the DVD once through. 
I went to the pool and without doing a single drill, I swam a length and I had zero pain. So for me personally, that was my trigger as, you know, I've been swimming my, you know, quote unquote, my whole life. And I've um, suddenly just by reading this, this methodology, I can swim without pain. So there's no other question that I was going to continue with this process. Um, and at the same time, I had uh, become a triathlon coach. And I felt like I'd missed out on a lot of opportunities to learn how to teach people swimming uh, to work with my athletes. And I had all these skills I'd build in teaching other outdoor abilities. But there was a big hole in my, um, you know, perceived hole in the way I could help people with swimming. So that led me to pursue total immersion um, as a coach. And one of the criteria for that was that you had um, attended a weekend workshop or done the equivalent with private lessons like you did this morning, Peter. Mm -hmm. um, and so I went to this weekend workshop not expecting to learn anything because, hey, I'm this experienced swimmer and I know what I'm doing and I'm a triathlon coach. Mm -hmm. And I was shocked. Um, just a few significant um, corrections by a coach in the water, you know, a, a small hands-on correction by Devana Eubanks um, in my uh, skating position. And it was like a light bulb going off. I had no idea that I didn't know the things that I needed to know. And I'd had other um, other uh, fast swimmers look at my stroke as well. And, um, you know, it, it just was not a comprehensive approach. So uh, ever since taking that weekend workshop, uh, you know, every swim that I've done has just been great. Um, for, for many months in a row, every swim that I went to the pool was the best swim of my life. And it was, was no exaggeration. I would get out of the pool and I just couldn't believe how, um, how amazing I felt. Not necessarily that my stroke was awesome at that point, but the amount of enjoyment that I had going into the pool, um, the, the knowledge of I know what to do to correct my stroke, having a plan to go to the pool and knowing that I wasn't just wasting my time. You know, and this was after having uh, recovered from back surgery and um, uh, competed at Escape from Alcatraz, which is a mile and a half swim through San Francisco Bay. I had done a lot of swimming to this point. And so it was really shocking and remarkable to me uh, that there was, there was yet more to learn and there was a fun, um, fun way to learn it. Awesome. So I'll stop there. <laughs> awesome. I mean, that that's a great story. Um, why don't we segue into the next question? Because I think that's my follow-up question sort of related to that. Why? What do you think changed, um, Suzanne, in your, your approach when you had the TI method sort of introduced? Why do you think the back pain changed? Like, was there something specific that you were doing that you can isolate that the TI method doesn't do or that it does do that, that maybe helped with that? Yeah, the, there's one very specific thing. When I was on, on swim team as a kid, I was taught to swim. This is the only piece of swim advice I, I remember getting. I know there was more, and I apologize to my coaches. <laughs> but it was to have the water line hit your forehead at your hairline. So you're looking forward. I was taught that as a kid. Um, the, in TI, you release the head into the water so that these neck muscles can relax. And it affects your whole buoyancy and your whole relationship with the water. So that was the the only change that I remember making on that that one day, that first day I went back to the pool, I just relaxed my head, bingo, neck pain gone, back pain gone. Well, that makes and, it... and the and the head and spine like to be aligned. Yes. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Yeah, we do that in the gym often. You know, the, there's an old cue that, you know, you'd look at the ceiling or something um, when he squatted. But mm -hmm. you know, nowadays, now we're thinking much more, you know, keeping that almost the same position you're in the TI, you're just standing up. 
but that that head and neck is aligned with the spine and you don't change the head position during the squat because that has interact you know in, that interacts with the the spinal position right mm -hmm. which, which we don't want to change when you have a big barbell on your back <laughs> um, right yeah and and with a barbell on your back it's it's you're artificially adding weight to your body in the water that little adjustment changes the gravity still affects you the same way but it's much more dramatic because if the head comes out it's like having an iceberg out of the water physics would say that a certain percentage of that iceberg is going to be floating above the water and the rest is going to be below the water you can't change the density of your body body while you're swimming so lifting the head out that percentage of your body comes out of the water other body parts have to sink it's just physics and if you try to to combat that any other way you're just using muscle energy to fight a, a physical law instead of using your energy to enjoy your swimming to swim faster to swim further to make improvements in your swimming awesome now terry why uh would you have someone you know try swimming or what reasons do you see people coming you know these these on what is it the adult onset swimmers why why are they coming to swimming as a, adults uh, a variety of reasons. A lot of them want to take up triathlon. Some of them have been long time, long time runners and they need something low impact if they want to continue running or maybe they've been told not to run anymore. And some it's a, it's an itch they failed to, failed to scratch for many years. You know, that the fact that they, they don't swim very well and, um, they, they think it's not, it's not a good idea, uh, to, to, have that deficit in their life on an ongoing basis. So that, you know, a lot of them take it up for semi-utilitarian reasons. And um, I think I think the best reason to swim is that it's, uh, first of all, it's an essential life skill. Absolutely. Um, it, should, it should almost be as unthinkable to be unable to swim as an adult to be unable to read. <laughs> um, so, so that's one one reason it's it, there's not as many things that uh, I, and I, I probably should leave more of, of this part of it to Suzanne the MD but uh, there are there are a few things that are going to be as good for your body and good to your body um, for as many years as as swimming I my eldest student took his first lesson at 94 and at, at oh. 98 he he swims 20 lengths every morning and uh, you know what else what else could he do at that level of physical activity at, at 98? Um, so, so that's a couple of good reasons. And the third good reason is actually that the swimming is counterintuitive. Um, everything, what one of the interesting things we discovered when uh, when we were t developing total immersion was that everything we taught people that really really worked was counterintuitive. Everything that really made a huge difference in their swimming was counterintuitive. So this fact that all of your instincts lead you in one direction and you have to work against these primal instincts and, and, and frankly against all, nearly all the information you are likely to hear about how to swim in order to become a much, much better swimmer. And, and you may reflecting on what you learned from Deb this morning, Peter, you may recognize the, the, you know, the, the truth in what I've said that probably virtually everything Deb told you to do was not something you would have thought by instinct to do. And and so that that fact uh, of swimming being counter to a lot of our most basic instincts means means it's a great vehicle 
for developing the capacity for self-realization, for, you know, realizing you have the potential to do things that you thought you couldn't do, and for learning how to learn. So I think those are plenty of plenty of good reasons to take up swimming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are, does anything else come to mind for you, Suzanne, um, as far as injury or, or things that maybe you want to build on from what Terry said? Well, uh, you know, from a, a strictly medical perspective, I think that the, the human body is designed to move. Um, water is uh, supportive, you know, you're buoyant, uh, buoyant in the water, so there's much less impact on joints. Um, it also provides uh, compressive uh, force. So whereas, you know, after bike riding, you may be familiar with putting your legs up or a lot of triathletes or um, endurance athletes will use those compression garments. Um, water provides the same thing. So simply standing in water vertically provides graduated compression for your, for your legs. Um, so there are a lot of reasons why water is a great place to be. And if your swim technique is, is reasonably sound, you can continue to swim, like Terry said, throughout your whole life. Um, I've, I haven't done this a lot. Uh, other, some of our other coaches have done more of it, but I've really enjoyed working with um, people with uh, physical disability or stroke, um, uh, stroke patients who are in recovery, uh, maybe left with a permanent disability. Because once you understand the principles of swimming well to make forward progress through the water, you can take any body, any, um, any adaptation, any disability, and help that person work with what they have. Um, I even had a, uh, a man who was born with no arms and no legs request swim lessons from me because oh, wow. he knew that there were things to do in the water that he wasn't familiar with that could, could help him be a little bit more comfortable. Wow. That would yeah. be <laughs> kicking the pants for anyone um, who, who's, you know, they're definitely, like you say, almost your, you know, your motivation you had as a, a youth um, when you started swimming, you know, seeing the three-year-old swimming too, right? It's, um, yeah, so definitely, you know, it, it's never too late by Terry's story of his 90-year-old client. And, you know, like you say, pretty much whatever you're dealing with in life, you know, swimming or, you know, even water walking or getting into water and, and as you say, you, doing what you can, um, you know, is mm-hmm. possible. Um, I think that's a good segue here. Why don't we go now we're talking about, you know, the counterintuitive nature of you know, maybe TI, but swimming in general. Um, maybe let's start with what is total immersion? You know, can you, can you put that into a, a, a nice statement, Terry, for me? What, what is um, Yeah, I, I think a succinct description is that humans are terrestrial mammals and swimming is an aquatic activity. And there's, um, there's a conflict there. Now, if you think about how terrestrial mammals swim, dogs, deer, etc., uh, it's it's all about avoidance. So the head is held high to avoid choking, and the limbs the limbs are going like mad to avoid sinking. Mm-hmm. So that's terrestrial technique. It's primal to us, and uh, so we teach uh, humans or terrestrial mammals to think and swim like aquatic mammals, and that's the big distinction. Uh, traditional lessons focusing on the pull and the kick. Uh, are really about trying to improve on terrestrial technique and it's you know it's so fundamentally inefficient and awkward and uncomfortable that we figure why you know why even work on improving it but but go another way so so we teach humans to swim like aquatic mammals and fish 
So that would be the first half of the distinction. And the second half is that because swimming like an aquatic mammal, there's nothing instinctive about it, and it's counterintuitive, that it almost necessarily to succeed at it, you have to make it an exercise in mindfulness. You always have to just leave a wall with uh, a clear intention and um, of something you're working on that if you were if you're not thinking about it you're you're not likely to do it and um, and devote yourself to thinking to to maintaining that focus through throughout the duration of whatever whatever the length of your swim is which is why we start people when we teach them with very short repeats you know five or six seconds or five or six yards for a lot of our early drills um, because they find that it's not easy to devote that kind of focus. So uh, swimming like an aquatic mammal and mindfulness would be the two pieces that I would point to. Okay. And what, uh, you know, there's a common uh, misconception, I guess, that total immersion uh, is a type of swimming, um, and, and you would disagree with that? Um, well, I'll, I'll say this, that if you see someone who has been taught or practiced or ta- taught themselves total immersion, if you see them swimming a total immersion freestyle, it's instantly recognizable, just like, uh, you know, a warrior too in yoga has characteristics that, you know, you see it, you recognize it any, immediately. A- anyone who knows what total immersion looks like or has seen a TI swimmer can recognize a TI swimmer instantly. Um, or and and so it has it does have signature elements uh, that uh, identify it. So from that standpoint, I you know it is a way of swimming um, if 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 you think of it in those terms. But uh, you know we we do describe it as as a way of learning and practice more than anything. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. So I guess actually, what what are the distinctions that you would see in somebody doing a total immersion style freestyle compared to, I don't know, to, to, almost, to, <laughs> to anybody who's not T.I. Anybody else, yeah. Um, Suzanne, you want to take that? Um, sure. I think some of the distinctions are um, in the recovery phase, which is uh, where the, the when the hand leaves the water. Um, near the back of the stroke before the hand enters the water in the front, obviously that's what you can see from above the water. And so when you watch someone swim that's that's either been self-taught or had TI lessons, the recovery is is the distinctive part of the stroke. And what you'll uh, often see is um, a a relaxed recovery arm, um, relaxed hand and fingertips, The uh, fingers and forearm will slip in just in front of the head, uh, all aligned with each other. Um, And when you're first learning this, maybe this is the phase that that you would be in after your lesson this morning, Peter, but anytime, um, as I'm sure you can attest from teaching uh, biking skills, you know, cyclocross mounts or dismounts, anytime you're learning something um, for the first time, it it needs to be slowed down and done very carefully and, and done very deliberately until it becomes uh, more instinctive, and then you can begin speeding up the process and doing it with more flow and less cognitive interference and have it just become a part of your natural movement. 
So you can kind of see a range of people in the pool from those who are practicing um, their TI technique with very careful um, recovery arm and very careful placement in the water. And then at the other end of the spectrum would be um, some uh, coaches. For example, we had a, a TI coach from the from UK, Jai Evans, who completed the English Channel yesterday. Um, he swam in 13 and a half hours. And throughout the day, people from his crew posted short little videos and photographs. And he was identifiable as a TI swimmer because the entire way across every picture that I saw in any case, um, he still had this beautifully relaxed looking <clears throat> recovery arm. And uh, the contrast to that would be um, what happens when you just simply try to move your arms fast and you end up um, flinging the arm out of the water and smacking it in the front of the water with, um, with less um, thought about what happens at the entry part and how the interface of the water surface in your arm affects the rest of your stroke in terms of um, uh, friction, energy dissipation, counter rotation, those sorts of things. So in a nutshell, I would say that observing the recovery is the most distinctive part of a TI stroke or a TI swimmer. I think if uh, if any of your any any of the listeners want to uh, just go to YouTube and Google Total Immersion or Shinji Takeuchi, but um, it go working from front to back of the body, what they will observe if they look at those videos is first of all an aligned head, very little of the head showing above the surface. Most people, most of the head is above the surface. Um, on every stroke, you'll see the body line is becomes fully extended. Uh, it's really more about extending the body line and forming long, sleek lines with the body rather than an emphasis on pulling and kicking. Uh, the kick will be pretty relaxed and pretty subdued. Um, the legs, we, we teach people that job one for the legs is to draft behind the upper body, not to churn the water into a froth. And then, as, as Suzanne said, uh, a very visible element is a uh, symmetrical, relaxed, uh, compact recovery where the fingers barely clear the surface and the hand slips into the water without without a splash. And most people will be very splashy and arm swingy uh, on their recovery. Yes. Um, so I'll try and get the, I believe I'll get a video of my before and after. And even the mm -hmm. after has pretty crazy, like almost windmill arms that I utilize. Um, despite, <laughs> despite us drilling, um, they sort of high elbow, I guess, if you will, with the fingers sort of just dragging. That's what we were working on today was sort of dragging fingers through the water um, on that recovery. Yeah. Um, yeah. So hopefully I can be the example of the bad one, and then I'll I'll try and find some <laughs> of these videos of the English Channel swim, um, and then some of the ones Terry mentioned on the YouTube, um, and I'll link those in the show notes just to try and get a oh, bit of a cool. contrast. Yeah, that's great. Uh, the name I'll, of the uh, English Channel swimmer's name, sorry, <clears throat> Jai Evans, J A I. Yep. Last name Evans, capital E V A N S. Awesome. And uh, I saw them all on Facebook. I don't know if they're on YouTube, but if but I can uh, lead you there if we get connected on Facebook. Sure. Um, interesting. So let's let's go right from that. Let's go. So first time you have people in the pool. Let's assume they're the adult onset swimmers. Um, you know, what are you seeing as the common problems? Um, maybe one or two, or maybe, why don't you each pick one your favorite problem you usually find, and then <laughs> and sort of what the drill would look like to sort of address that. Um, the, the very first thing we always address is head position. We, we have 
Um, you know, so it's at one of our open water camps, uh, a comment we got on the last day of camp when people were asked to reflect on things they noticed and so on. And she said, you know, I got great coaching from six different coaches and it was obvious to me we're all coaching from the same playbook. So that playbook is, is about we always teach balance first. We, we have a, a hierarchy or a series of skills we teach and the order in which we teach them is balance first core stability, which is a, a balances front to back body control so that your body is effortlessly horizontal and you don't have to use kicks or heartbeats to be horizontal. Um, and it balances not to be confused with buoyancy. Um, so it's to be effortlessly horizontal. You feel weightless when you have balance. The second, the second skill we teach is, uh, is core stability or lateral stability. Um, to not to wiggle or wobble or, uh, or over-rotate as you move through the water because that will cause the arms and legs to splay out and do crazy things to compensate for the instability you introduce. And the third is uh, streamlining, to move through the water and well, to shape your vessel, as we, as we say, to move through the water with the least resistance and turbulence. And then finally, uh, on the pulling, the kicking, and the breathing, uh, to synchronize everything with the movement of the core body so the body is working as a unit. So it's that series of, of four skills, balance, stability, streamlining, and synchronous movement uh, or synchronous propulsion. And uh, the very first skill that we always focus on is having a weightless aligned and stable head. And we use a couple of drills, a drill called torpedo where the arms are at the sides um, because when the arms are not alongside the head, you're much more aware of what the head is doing. So we, we uh, teach head position first, always, always the first thing. Awesome. Yeah, and it was a, a, a really good one. I enjoyed that one today. Um, it definitely helped. Um, both yeah, if you don't get that right, nothing else is going to work. Totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that was good. And especially as a, I don't know if it's because I'm leaner or, and or because I'm a cyclist and my legs weigh a lot relative to my little torso. Um, <laughs> but definitely I find the streamlining and keeping my legs um, up is difficult without kicking wildly or maybe because yeah. of, because of my wild kicking. But by the end of the session, it, I, you know, I, my supermans, my torpedoes were all pretty good. And definitely I felt, um, definitely like a, a, a length, you know, back and forth. I wasn't winded. I was very calm. Yeah. Almost you could say Zen, as you say. Um, <laughs> you, yeah, very may relaxed. Have come to a realization that you weren't, uh, that you don't have, "Quote unquote heavy legs," but that you know via physics, you can you can do something to change that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's where the the head position is so important, and then also the the reaching that hand out, right? That's the well, not only reaching it out, but reaching it below down. your body, right? Yeah, below yes. your body as yes, you which extend. I, I got several yeah. nut slaps on the wrist, but firm. <laughs> Hands down, <laughs> gestures from yeah. Deb this morning. Yeah. Those, what, are the, those are the two things. They Together, having your head weightless and aligned and reaching down as you reach forward, those two things lift the legs. It's, it's free lift for the legs. So why kick like crazy when you can get free lift? And you're right. It's more of a physics, like you're using sort of a fulcrum almost to lever it. But it's also, it doesn't, as you say, it's counterintuitive. 
that pushing your hands and face into the water when you're trying not to sink, right? Like you don't want your legs and your body, I think, by connection to sink. Yeah. So you're jamming more into the water. Yeah. To be a little more particular about the description, we actually don't want people to push the face into the water, but to rest the head's weight on a cushion of water molecules. Right. <laughs> and, and we did another one for the, the head position where we actually, and I don't know if that was just before the torpedo leading into it, but we, I was actually just standing and we sort of bent over, hinged at the hips and just sort of let the head float and the hands, we did the hands as well. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the head has got lots of cavities, right? So, so it's, uh, it's buoyant. Right. So just okay. let, it, let it do what it does naturally. Okay, um, and then Suzanne, did you want to build on any of that um, for another common issue you see or problem? Terry did. Um, well, I don't have any uh, any additional issues. I mean, what Terry's uh, description was pretty comprehensive, but just to give some examples, and maybe you experienced this. Um, the the first thing that most people do um, is try to see where they're going, um, and that's head position. You know, so as humans, we're built to be upright on our two feet. Um, our eyes are, are placed in the front of our skulls. Um, we have a horizon line in front of us. And everything about being a human is um, designed around these features inside of our brain and skull that keeps us upright, eyes looking forward, using the horizon for balance. Um, and if we close our eyes, we've got some additional tools available for balance, but that visual um, reception of information is really, really important for us. And, and you don't realize how important it is until you're you're missing it. So if you take someone and throw them in the water, <laughs> the, the first thing that they do is try and see where they're going. It's just instinct. It's not that they're, they're trying to swim poorly on purpose. They're trying to swim really, really hard. Um, and so this is where this counterintuitive nature comes in. The reason that it's counterintuitive is because as humans, we want to see where we're going. And so looking forward, like I was taught as a child, um, picks the head up and it does. it has all sorts of consequences. Um, you know, you, you will see fast swimmers who swim looking forward, but they're also using a lot of compensating musculature to be able to do that. Um, and you know, it's a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of all the people in the world who are swimming that are doing that and, um, and getting away with it, that everybody else, um, by aligning the spine, as you mentioned before, not only does it help with balance in the pool, you know, it lightens your hips. If you just practice looking at, uh, in Superman position, looking forward and then looking down at the bottom, or maybe doing it in reverse, looking down first and then looking up, you can see what happens to the hip position. Um, so that ties into the balance that's the, at the foundation of uh, the teaching methodology. But the other thing from a biomechanical aspect is that when you look forward, it really binds up the trapezius muscles, the way the shoulder blades can move, the range of motion of your shoulders, and that can lead directly into poor shoulder mechanics and shoulder injuries and pain. Uh, and that's one of the, the things that was most exciting for me, if we go back all those years to shortly after my back surgery, is that by releasing my head in the water, um, not only did I get rid of that pain because I wasn't using my low back muscles to try and keep my back end up, but it freed up my, uh, my shoulder girdle to be able to move my arms in a way that was less effort and more effective at moving me forward through the water. Mm. And that's, that's a great, what the way Suzanne described that from the physician and exercise physiologist perspective um, is, is a really good example of what I said earlier about how counterintuitive 
the the skills of really good swimming are because you think about your hind brain or your amygdala uh, is is try is wanting you to look forward uh, and uh, you know that you have to overcome that you you're hardwired to do that and you have to and you do, it's not even conscious for you it's 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 working in your subconscious and so as you start learning swimming skills you have to realize that you're wired that way and that it has to be a conscious intentional effort to bypass that and and learn to align your head and look down mm. yeah that was um it's it's definitely difficult and you know, you see, it's interesting, Suzanne, the point you made about the shoulder positioning is 100% true. Um, mm-hmm. But it's interesting, I hadn't connected, I was talking today to Deb about, you know, when I'm winded and breathing after my single laps I've been doing over the last few mm-hmm. weeks, I, I like to observe and judge all the other swimmers in the pool. And um, some of the, it seems like the older swimmers, but really all of us have pretty limited shoulder range of motion. Um, but it's interesting the people who don't seem to be getting full extension, you know, a lot of, you know, are, aren't gliding very well. Um, they're not extending that arm in front of them. They also mm-hmm. are the ones that I think are also tending to be looking forward more. And that's where you're getting that, like their extension is basically like, you know, making a, I'm trying to think of a way to describe this, but they're not extending their arm at their arm, their elbows almost at a 90 degree angle at their maximal extension. Right, and that's not only because of the instinct to look forward, which kind of puts the arm into the position of having to break, be a brace for the weight of the head, that's part of it, but also that we also have this other primal instinct to windmill the arms or to push water back, and uh, you know, so what we tell people very early on uh, is that job one for the arm is to extend your body line, not to push water back. So. The right arm is extending while the left is pushing back, and it's it's a matter of shifting your attention from pushing water back to to the arm going forward. Mm-hmm. And that's another example of a counterintuitive thought that really makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I definitely also exhibit that in this video I'll post. <laughs> is I I definitely go from that pull and then try and push as far back as I can. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we are working a lot on um, trying to pull that elbow out of the water sooner you know, before I yeah. start trying to, it's almost like a dip motion that I'm trying to do. Or, um, I think it's because coming from cross country skiing, um, you do a bit more classic cross country skiing. You do a little more of a push behind, um, yeah. sort of while you're reaching forward. So I was like skiing and swimming, very similar motion. Um, yeah. but I don't, you don't get to do quite as much push off the, you know, as you're gliding. Um, I find, I find skate skiing and, and, uh, freestyle swimming to be very similar yes and so that's exact conversation we had today was that it was more of a sort of just like you know push it or not push it but sort of pull it and then you're done you don't get to sort of Mm -hmm. push it behind you yeah peter that part of the stroke is um it's something uh you know we could have an hour-long discussion just on what happens in the in the last six inches by your hip and you know traditional coaching teaches that there there's a push there um and so a lot of people do that. And what happens is, um, you know, your, your arm is connected at your shoulder joint, obviously. So um, it's like using a compass to draw a circle. If you're pushing at the back, your arm is at full extension. And then and the next natural move is to continue that push motion up towards the ceiling. And then you've got this weight that's behind you um, with a hand that's moving in a circular motion. And, and some people will even take that handful of water and scoop it out of the water and you'll see it flying up behind them almost like they're 
trying to put out a fire on their pants, you know, like throwing water back behind them. Um, and so re- re- softening uh, the arms activity back there is, uh, is counterintuitive. Um, you know, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't straighten the arm, but there are other things that are prioritized. So while that arm uh, may be straightening behind you, what's really important is that the opposite side of the body is lengthening and streamlining. And so the purpose of that rear arm um, isn't necessarily to push water behind you at that point. The purpose of that rear arm is to is to maintain that elongation and in a relaxed way swing it wide out of the water so as not to disrupt you so that it can take its turn to streamline on the opposite side. Um, so that it's a matter of prioritizing um, the features of the stroke that are going to maintain your balance, maintain your stability, and keep you moving forward um, regardless of how much pressure you're putting back there. Um, you know, it's like designing, um, a race car, designing a, um, a scale airplane, uh, that when you're designing a model airplane, there's something called a glide out test before you put a motor on it, you do a glide out where you just take the frame and the wings and you release it. There may be a fixed height where they can sort of measure these things in a standard way. I'm not sure about that, but you see how far will the airplane glide through the air? Is it balanced the way you've built the, the fuselage and the body of the, of the aircraft? Is it tilting to one side? You know, all of those things need to be corrected before you can even think about putting a motor on it. Um, so it's the same way with swimming. The vast majority of, of swimmers, um, whether it's recreational, fitness, triathletes, master swimmers, will benefit hugely from seeking ways to reduce drag, improve their balance in the water, and reduce effort before just, you know, adding power to the stroke. It's not as easy as just um, opening up the throttle or pushing down on a pedal harder. You really, because every time you make that kind of muscular action to push, the rest of your body responds somehow. So you need to constantly keep those um, those priorities um, at the top. Even as you decide to um, add speed or add power in any way, um, the second that you lose one of the other priorities, you know, you push hard in the back and the head pops up um, because your brain has shifted into a different mode, then you've just given up everything you're trying to do by adding the, the power at the back. So almost everybody's much better off using less effort and less energy, focusing on those other priorities, and they'll go faster and they'll have more fun that way. Yeah, it's interesting. We talked today about cyclocross barriers, so basically getting off your bike <laughs> you know, at speed potentially um, and going over hurdles and then jumping back on your bike. Um, and I'm very big at slowing that down, you know, getting rid of the barriers to start, you know, and just practicing on and off or just, you know, just off and then doing it at walking pace and just seeing, can Mm -hmm. we, can we move, you know, across the barriers without having much disruption in speed, um, you know, or sorry, forward motion, um, Mm -hmm. and do it at a very low effort, no explosive jumping and no, you know, crazy speed or, you know, hectic dismounts. And then eventually we add speed to that, but everyone wants to go and try and go at it as fast as they can. (laughs) And then you end up with sloppy compensations and, you know, it just uh, a matter of time till something goes wrong. Right. And YouTube videos of guys named Joey crashing (laughs) for the barriers. Now we got a link to Joey (laughs) in the show notes. Oh no, not that. (laughs) It's going to go viral again. Um, so what swimmer, I was the swimmers got to learn it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, see how safe the water is. Another reason. To yeah, swim. yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking here. So would you b- agree with if we said three key terms um, f- for total immersion swimming? Would you agree with torpedo, Superman, and skating position would be three to learn right off the bat, or would you disagree and suggest something else? Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily 
mention drills if, if I wanted to convey to people three key terms sure. about total immersion. So my my three would be, and I, I thought about this after you sent the question, so the first would be efficiency or economy, that that your your goal is to find the most, the easiest way to perform any task in the water because we are hugely wasteful. Uh, as human swimmers, we are hugely, hugely wasteful. The, um, the average untutored or uncoached swimmer converts only 3% of energy into forward motion, which means 97% is, is wastefully diverted. So energy or economy would be the first. Uh, and balance or weightlessness would be the next because that's the very first thing you must master in order to be an efficient economical swimmer. And then third is moving with grace or fluency because you want to move like water and uh, when you're when you're in the water. So those would be the three terms I would come up with. I think Suzanne had a different set. Sure. Let's do it. Uh, yeah, well, my set kind of built on Terry's set. I knew that he would have really, really good answers for that question. Um, and for me, one thing that's important is helping my my new um, swimmers just clarify terms um, because otherwise you can get into an hour-long discussion of what what do high elbows mean? And then you've consumed your entire lesson and not really made any forward progress. Um, so Terry's, the things that Terry just described completely reframe uh, what swimming is. So a uh, triathlete coming to me wants to get become a better swimmer, but they still want to get their workout in. Um, and those two things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, but they have a preconceived idea of, of what workout means. You know, workout means getting your heart rate up. Workout means using your muscles. Workout means feeling tired at the end. It means being able to eat, uh, you know, milkshake and, and um, hot fudge sundae when you're done with your swim workout. But if you take Terry's description, uh, you know, how he just defined uh, the gracefulness and the efficiency well, what's the purpose of a workout in a triathlete schedule? It's to become a better swimmer so that you can participate in your multi-sport activity and not burn out on the on the swim, not feel like you've just gone to war on the swim. So I think it's really important to clarify certain terms. And the big terms that come to mind are um, our workout, um, recovery, and uh, high elbows comes up all the time. Um, I just like to give swimmers uh, or you know my students the opportunity to acknowledge that they've got these questions. Um, free up their mind by reframing what we're about to do. And then later, not during lesson time or not during doing pool time, they can, they can reconcile uh, what the new things that they're learning and how to fit that into their current paradigm of training. Awesome. Um, okay. Now from there, my next question was, is there any equipment that people need, you know, to, to start swimming? Hopefully a bathing suit. <laughs> uh, Suzanne not. and I agree on this one totally. Mm -hmm. Okay. What is it? Yep. Bathing suit, goggles, Period. plus or minus a temper trainer. Full stop. I, I love it. <laughs> yeah. That's simple. Yeah. That's what I was hoping Minimalist. you were going to say. Yeah. Um, yeah, we don't believe in, a, in equipment. You know, the buoys, the paddles, the kickboards, the fins, the yada yada. Okay. We believe in, in, in learning how to have a relationship with the water with the body you were born with. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, now, I propose the torpedo, Superman, and skating position. Would those, you know, are those sort of first three sort of drills um, 
that I, I could link to the video, I'm sure. Um, yes, they are. Yeah, those, those would be the would first be the, three? The, the three fundamental drills. And yeah. so that's the first couple sessions you're in the pool, those would be sort of what you do once you get into the pool? Yeah. We actually don't have that many drills. We used to have a lot more drills. And uh, when I mentioned the 94-year-old student, a guy named Paul Lurie, I found I had to take a, a very simplified way to teaching him, and it, it worked so incredibly well. I thought, why, why shouldn't everyone learn by this more streamlined, <laughs> stripped-down way? So we've, we've taken out a lot of drills and stuff, and we replaced them with things we call rehearsals, where you're, you're standing or crouching in the water, you're not moving through the water, and you're practicing a little micro-movement that's pretty important. Mm -hmm. uh, so a few drills, um, um, a number of rehearsals, which, as I said, is, is being in a, a non-moving position and practicing a micro-movement that would be difficult to do um, right off the bat while you're in full stroke. And then a lot of whole stroke swimming with uh, very finely choreographed uh, groups of focal points that... that you know, a group of focal points, there might be three focal points that are very closely related. And, uh, you know, we have for balance, we have easily three, there are more, but, but, you know, we could give a person three focal points for balance, three focal points for stability, three focal points for streamlining, three focal points for, for synchronous propulsion, for instance. So, a lot of really very intentional, very focused uh, whole stroke swimming. That's Not so much drills. That's awesome. And, and I, I mean, I think my next question was how can I practice without a big pool? And I think those three drills, the rehearsals, maybe not so much the skating or sorry, the swimming with a focal point, but the, the drills certainly and the rehearsals could be very much done in a smaller backyard pool if you needed to, right? Yeah. You want to pick that one up, Suzanne? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, it, some of my my best, I, I won't necessarily break, say breakthroughs, but moments of consolidation have come when I've been traveling and have been limited to a small hotel pool because it forces you to uh, think of, of um, very specifically what you're going to do. Well, I can't take um, more than four or five full strokes, but what part of my stroke would I like to work on in this opportunity? And, you know, going back to the, the paradigm of, of working out and a training schedule, if, um, if I am traveling and I've got a hotel pool, uh, what can I do in this time that's available to me? I want to get in the water. How can I make this the most productive? Um, and an example, I did an open water swim on Monday. And uh, what I was thinking of on that swim, um, it's a little bit esoteric, but I was thinking about what my, um, what the opposite side leg was doing the moment after I breathed. So if I breathed to my left, what was my right leg doing just after the breath? And if I'm well balanced, that right leg will be near the water's surface in a position to uh, beat down and help rotate me back into the water. And so all I was doing was paying attention to that feeling. Um, and when that feeling wasn't there, I knew that something else had happened just prior that, that destabilized me and it usually meant that my core had gotten too relaxed. So, you know, that's one example of something I could do in a hotel pool. I would maybe do that in skate position, for example. I'd be in skate position. I'd focus on the separation of my legs and uh, turn my head to the left to um, look at the air. If I'm not moving quickly, I may not be able to actually breathe to the left. If I'm just in a static 
uh, very slow forward moving skate position, I can at least rotate my head and look to my left uh, and pay attention to where my leg is. So um, using hotel pools to really isolate one little part of your stroke that always seems to elude you in full stroke swim because you're thinking about so many other things. Mm-hmm. Well, we like that as we're, you know, pretty typically only with hotel pools around. <laughs> uh-huh. um, now that you now that you mentioned the open water, though, I would actually love to hear, do you guys have any sort of one best tip for conquering open water? I know uh, that's sort of my my white whale. I can get through a pool fine, but open water still panics me a little. Once I'm in it, I'm, I'm okay, but the idea of getting into it scares the crap out of me. Oh, that's a that's a pretty common reaction to open water. In fact, Michael Phelps, the most uh, the most famous and decorated swimmer in history, he he said uh, he would never swim in open water. It just it's it's an unthinkable thing for him. So (laughs) that's yeah. So I'm basically like Michael Phelps is what I'm what I'm getting from this. So so the first thing that we teach people when we have an open water clinic or camp. The very first thing we say to them is that uh, as you move from the pool to open water, you move from from an environment that's very familiar, that's completely transparent, that's very controlled and very predictable, uh, into an environment that is none of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the most important thing we teach people uh, is is what you will think or how you will think when one of those unpredictable or uh, uncontrollable things happens to you. It's, it's learning really to control your thinking as I, th- I think you, you are realizing that these panicky, the panicky reaction you have, the most important thing for you is, is to defuse that panicky reaction and replace it. You know, what's, what's the story that you just told us about open water? It's kind of a story you tell yourself, is it not? About mm-hmm. swimming in open water compared to swimming in the pool, so you have to learn to rewrite that story, and uh, that's a lot of what we teach people uh, in open water, and and they learn to love it. It it does. It only takes a a couple of a couple of days to to really uh, flip the script, so to speak, for what they <laughs> what they think about open water. Yeah. So so rewrite the snakes and potential zombies <laughs> with. Uh, no, this is fun. <laughs> well, it's things like for a triathlete, it's that you're often going to be swimming in a pack. You're going to have people around you. And how do you feel about that with your, your personal space being invaded and, and so on? So it, it's a lot of different things. It's mm-hmm. being far from a wall, a com- the comfort of a wall. It's not having a lane line to follow. It's uh, not being able to see perfectly clearly. You know, pool water with your goggles, you can see everything. And in open water, it's it's often you you don't see very much at all, and it's it's going back again to your brain does not like that. Yeah. Now mm-hmm. my my problem was I I watched too many episodes of the X Files right before my first triathlon, <laughs> and I feel like from there I've just been sort of stuck in that that mind pattern. So mine's even goofier than normal. People like I'm not afraid of yeah. getting kicked in the face. I'm afraid of like fluke man. Well, we take- <laughs> We take uh, swimmers on, in, on open water camps. We call them open water experience. And uh, it, they, by, the, by, the end of, by the end of five or six days, they are just flat in love with open water swimming after you know, going through a, kind of a, 
a studiously choreographed introduction to it. Mm -hmm. Oh man, we might have to do this now. Yeah. <laughs> Molly, can I add one other thing about yeah, open water swimming? Please. It, it may not be your, you know, there are so many things about open water swimming and then adding it to a triathlon that a triathlete who's having or having trouble with it, it could be any one of those things. It could be the, the snakes and the aliens in the water. It could be <laughs> getting kicked in the face. Uh, but another component that for a lot of people is just simply the, the, the change in environment, like Terry alluded to, you, you can't see as well. Um, there is wind, there are waves, there's chop on the surface. Mm -hmm. um, the thing that helps me the most, and I do this in, um, in the worst conditions, actually the worser the condition, uh, the more I go back to fundamentals. Um, part of my undergrad degree, uh, my undergrad degree was in earth science. And so as part of that, we studied, you know, water motion and wave motion. And if you take a cork and you put it in the water and some waves come through, that cork goes up in the air. Um, it makes a little circle. It goes down, uh, on the surface of the water, at the trough of the wave, and it comes right back to the exact same place where it started. So while waves are moving through the water into shore, that little cork is just going around in a gentle circle. And if you put um, arms and legs on that cork and, and asked it to swim um, in any direction against where the wave was naturally taking it, it would be using up a lot of energy, when in the end it's still going to end up in the same place where it started without, doing, without spending any effort. So almost no matter what size waves are, you're in, whether there's swell, whether there's a little surface chop because the wind is coming by, the water just inches or less, you know, an inch under the surface is the same as the water you're swimming in in the pool. Mm -hmm. um, so whether you're being bobbed up and down or being pulled in and out by a gentle um, tidal flow or uh, swells coming through, if you just ignore that, um, if you can see the bottom in the ocean and watch the, the grass on the bottom and see how the grass flows back and forth, let your body flow with that grass while you just continue to feel the water that you're in. The water that you're in isn't moving past you. Uh, you're moving with the water. So you can continue the same stroke you've been learning in the pool, even though you're in open water. And I think that's really key for helping people feel the water, appreciate that there is movement, but that that movement isn't necessarily um, antagonistic for, uh, for you to still swim with good skill. Mm -hmm. no, that's like an that. interesting paradigm. Yeah, I like that. Um, I want to knock off a couple of quicker ones here. You know, first time in the pool, you know, the pool might be familiar to, to those that have been in swimming in the pool. But for first time in the pool, it's a little awkward for everyone. I was wondering, you know, is there a, a etiquette or, or something that people screw up or, you know, that you guys dislike when people come to the pool the first time uh, that you could share with us? Just sort of first timers like do this to feel more comfortable just in the pool environment. Uh, I'll, I'll go with that. Um, the, first of all, nobody cares what you look like. Uh, don't be shy about wearing um, the whatever your coach recommended, you know, jammers or a Speedo or a new suit. Nobody really cares. Nobody's looking at you. Mm -hmm. um, and there are all sorts of people of all types and body shapes that go to the pool to exercise. So that's thing number one is uh, to try to let go of that self-consciousness. Um, the, the next most important thing I think is how do you, how do you get into a lane? Um, obviously, it's easy if the lanes are empty. Um, if you're just practicing small drills and goofy little things, feeling the water, not taking full strokes, use the open part of the pool if there is one. Um, and if there is someone swimming in the lane, uh, not jumping in without them knowing that you're there. So what I'll usually do is um, sit at the edge of the pool with my feet in the middle of the lane. So when, the, when they come to the wall, they have to see that there are feet there. 
And if it's an experienced team-based swimmer, they'll just keep swimming. They'll know you're there and you can slip in behind them. Um, if they're a little bit more recreational, you want to have a, a quick conversation. Hey, is it okay if I share this lane? And then do you want to circle swim or do you want to split the lane? Which means um, always staying on the on one side of the lane. When you go down, you stay on the right. When you come back, you also stay on the right. That's a circle. So you don't head, run into each other head on. If there's just two of you, sometimes you can split the lane. One person swims on the right side of the lane. One person swims on the left side. So that's kind of site dependent as well. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah, I do the I do the same thing. If uh, someone's swimming in a lane, and I'm fortunate uh, where I swim the the local college, I can usually um, I, I seldom have to share a lane with more than one other person. So if someone's got a lane to themselves and um, all the lanes are occupied by at least one person. I choose, choose a lane. I'll, I'll just sit on the edge and dangle my legs in the water so mm. they know that I'm there. Uh, and then once they take notice of me, I say, do you mind splitting? Awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those were a couple of the things that I sort of had to learn as we got the circle swimming <laughs> and stuff and dealing with the busier pool. But, yeah, definitely even just the walking out and I, I have jammers I believe is what I have and yep. I mean I'm used to cycling, uh -huh. I'm used to cycling tight so it wasn't so shocking for me but I can see that <laughs> someone who's used to just wearing you know surf shorts or something it might not be as comfortable but you know it's sort of the the tools of the trade so to speak right mm -hmm. yeah just get just get a I would recommend that uh, you know you not wear baggy shorts yeah they'll sort of drag your hips down but you know a pair of jammers uh, a, you know good fitting pair of jammers is, is good yeah so the a baggy set of shorts would actually pull your hips down yeah they carry a lot of water i guess that makes sense huh i wore baggy yeah. shorts today because i forgot my jammers at the house <laughs> we, we don't need a lot extra, of drag. extra weight and drag around our hips awesome that's a good tip in itself um or at least a reason to wear jammers yeah, especially for people uh, like cyclists and triathletes, like you mentioned, lots of uh, muscle in the legs and little fat for buoyancy uh, back there. The more you can do to lighten the hips, the better. So jammers all the way. Awesome. Um, anything else, Molly, on your end? Um, I think the uh, the one we've talked about with the uh, what's the one cool move to feel more <laughs> confident in the pool is sort of my my personal favorite task with any of the sports. So how can uh -huh. we look like we know what we're doing right away? Suzanne had the best idea on this. <laughs> okay. Oh, awesome. Thanks, Terry. Um, I think a good wall push-off is the coolest thing that you can do uh, because it teaches a lot of things about um, comfort and balance and streamlining. If you visualize, uh, you know, the Olympics, you, they showed all the turns underwater and watched them push off the wall. I mean, how cool is that? If you mm -hmm. could push off the wall... Um, not even do any kicking, but just a nice under, underwater push-off, streamline, you're traveling forward, um, and you break out of the water. If you can maintain that forward momentum, um, then you're a pretty good swimmer. And what an awful lot of people do is one of two things. Either they've got a really good wall push-off, so you know, streamlined, they're horizontal, they're cutting through the water like a torpedo, um, and as soon as they break the surface, they start to stroke, and it's like putting the brakes on. Um, so that's thing number one that I see a lot. Thing number two is that people don't know how to push off the wall at all, and so what they, they do is, um, if they're starting a length or if they're continuing, they, they reach the wall, um, they turn around and face the opposite end, full chest forward, head up out of the water, they lean forward and start to fall, and eventually, 
the head and the arms get into the water so that they're back in kind of a Superman position. But they've spent, you know, 5, 10, 15 feet sort of plowing through the water, and it's an opportunity cost. Mm -hmm. If all you do is learn how to push off the wall, you're rehearsing on every length, um, streamlining um, comfort and balance. It's the easiest thing in the world to do, and it's a great little game to play is just push off the wall, if, you, if it's an empty pool day and you've got the two or three empty lanes with the lane ropes on, you can go crossways, push off the sidewall and see how many lanes you can get under. I would I like definitely that. practice that with legs streamlined, not kicking, and see yeah. how far you can travel effortlessly. It's a wonderful, wonderful feeling to be traveling effortlessly and something that people are not used to at all. Yeah, well, Peter, Peter can make it to the, the bottom of the pool doing that um, <laughs> really efficiently. Yes. So, can, so, Peter, can you redirect your, your energy, you know, so that you're in a horizontal body position for as long as possible? Even if you're sinking towards the bottom, if you land on the bottom horizontally, that's still progress. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I don't care how high or low people are in the water, but if you can push off the wall and be streamlined and control your your balance through um, arm position, leg position, core, muscle tone, head position, uh, and maintain a horizontal position, even if you sink to the bottom because you're more dense, that's still progress. Awesome. Just to clarify, Suzanne, you were saying when you're turning, so you get hit the other end of the pool, mm -hmm. um, and you're going to turn, you're suggesting that you want to try and not like you, you want to drop your head as soon as you can to get back into streamline and that's the mistake people make. Did I understand well, that? Yeah, there's a lot of different variations on it. And you know, sometimes um, people will post a video online to get feedback on their swimming and without seeing a single stroke, I can tell in the first five feet off the wall what their stroke's going to look like because people tend to maintain the same posture throughout the whole thing. Um, and so the, this plow approach where the chest is forward and the, the eyes are looking forward if they come off the wall that way, it's very difficult to then get the head down and then get streamlined. You know, if you're thinking about it, it may eventually happen. Um, but to just make it as simple as possible, uh, as soon as you start your next length, look down at the bottom of the pool, point your head forward, and get your hands below your body line like Terry mentioned. You know, those would be specific cues to help you get into a good position as quickly as possible. Okay. So sort of as you're pushing off the wall, make sure that you're like, before you sort of spring, that you're getting into that um, Superman position. Yeah, t I think Terry has um, a clip on, on YouTube, a short clip of uh, the, the TI pushes and turns video. Okay. And there are some very elegant ways to, to do open wall turns. You know, I'm not even talking about flip turning. I'm just talking about getting off the wall. Uh, and that's something that I still practice and still try to improve on, even though I've been able to do a flip turn since I was eight is, you know, what's the smoothest and most efficient way to reverse direction and not lose energy? Um, you know, much the same way a volleyball player would uh, run at the net and then spring upwards. How do you convert that energy uh, into up and not just make it a standing jump? Um, yeah, so I work on push-offs relentlessly, even though I've been swimming for 50 plus years. I still work on push-offs because it's fun. It feels good. And, uh, you know, I just, I just love the feeling of gliding with without a kick and um, in balance and breaking out through this coming through the surface in a low balanced position moving forward and maintaining the momentum from the underwater push as I come through the surface into my stroke. Awesome. 
Well, I think that's that's really good. I don't know if you, did you guys have anything else you wanted to share? I, I didn't do all the questions we had talked about, but mm-hmm. I think you guys covered a lot of the stuff within other questions. Was there anything else on your mind you wanted to communicate? Well, I'm just glad Molly got to the cool move question. Okay. I'm pretty psyched <laughs> yeah, on that. She likes one. to keep that one in there. Um, <laughs> awesome. Um, can yeah, you, I think no, we've given people plenty to chew on and digest. Here. There is a lot there for sure. And I, I think, you know, coupling this with a lesson and then also getting to talk to you guys, I feel so psyched for swimming, but then also, you know, just way more confident than I did when I woke up this morning. So it's Sweet. been a successful morning. Good. Seems like our, our plan for next summer is starting to take uh, shape. Yeah, I'm always trying to talk me into doing Iron Man Whistler. So. Ah. Uh. <laughs> yeah, so I have to go from like two lengths to whatever Iron 2. Man 4 is. Two point four miles, fifty meters, <laughs> two point four miles. You're proud. Have you done there. any, Peter? Have you done any triathlons yet? No, <laughs> but I can bike and run really well. So I figure. Why don't if you I just... start? Why don't you start with a sprint and then move up to an Olympic and then try a half and so on? Yeah, yeah, for sure. That would be the progression I would use for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. It it will probably happen sooner than you think. Um, and one one word of caution: if you uh, this, a lot of people will sign up for their first triathlon, which is an Ironman, and maybe in theory they give themselves enough time to train. But what they end up doing is because they have this goal in their head of swimming 2.4 miles, they don't allow enough time uh, in the water to work on um, efficiency and streamlining. They're always thinking about working out and building the endurance. And if you've got um, a very inefficient stroke with poor habits. And you, you're a great athlete. Uh, I mean, Peter, I assume you're a great athlete because of your, your cycling and racing background. It's pretty good. Um, <laughs> I, I have no doubt that whatever your stroke is currently like, you could train it hard, hard enough and long enough to swim 2.4 miles. And then you say, okay, now I can do the distance. Now I want to become a better swimmer. Well, then you've ingrained all of these you know, thousands upon thousands upon thousands, maybe millions of poor stroke habits. Um, and it's very difficult to make changes. Um, it's so whereas funny. You, like amen. when you say that, you're you're basically saying the exact same thing Peter says about mountain biking and mountain bike skills, just with swimming as the thing. So Peter's lazy yeah. enough that he wants to do yeah. this as minimally as possible. I think I, I'm <laughs> older now and gone through a whole career. It's yeah, definitely. I just want to get through the swim and not do anything, so that then I can finish the thing and. <laughs> that's that's more where my goal is. So that's I mean that's what attracted me to the total immersion uh, method. And yeah, I, I, I there's no I have no if you can tell me that I can finish the race and I don't have to swim two dot four miles even beforehand, then I'm happy. I'll just yeah. I'll just keep what doing my two lengths. If you're already a good runner and biker and you're learning TI, you don't have to start with a sprint. You can you can easily easily do a uh, an Olympic distance as your first. Yeah. Oh yeah. Awesome. Um, so I have the Total Immersion websites and stuff. Is there anything as far as, are you, are you guys on Twitter or anything like that that I can link to? Yeah, we do have a Total Immersion Twitter account. I, I, I'll send uh, you. Well, I can yeah, I'll, off. I'll let you know if I can't find it. Okay. I have My Twitter is, um, actually I'm not sure, I think it's Steel City Coach, and then I've got a, a Facebook page, and then my business address is steelcityendurance.com. And I have your websites and stuff there too. And I, on, on the Total Immersion website, you can find my blog. I try to blog every week. And um, oh, that's awesome, I, Jerry! I didn't know I'll have to follow that. Then. Oh, I've yeah. been I've been reading it. Oh, okay, Molly's <laughs> been a fan. I'm becoming a fan now. Um, awesome. So Terry's blog, I'll put on there too. Awesome. Thank you again so yeah, much. Thank you guys. That was a super yeah, this talk. Is great. Yes.
You are very welcome. It's okay. been a pleasure to, to have this conversation with you. Yeah. yeah. Well, yes. we'll yeah, keep you. Let's do. We'll keep Let's you do a follow up. Absolutely. I was going to say, we'll keep you posted on the episode and on Peter's progress in the pool. Yeah, we'll have to. Yeah. yeah. Now, yeah. Molly, are you a good swimmer? Well, that's what I was going to say. I also want to do a follow up because the reason I didn't go with Peter today is, yeah, like I'm actually, I, I wouldn't say like a great swimmer, but pretty good. And I can swim the 2.4 miles and stuff. So I didn't uh -huh. want to, I didn't want to make it a weird uh thing where she had somebody that's been swimming for you know 20 odd years and someone who yeah. is just getting into it yeah i would say i mean just from what i've learned from watching the total immersion stuff and and what like molly's fairly natural like she definitely strikes me as a fish you know and even mm -hmm. like i say i've been watching you know and i think as a kinesiologist i have a relatively good eye and can mm -hmm. see that and definitely there's like she's not slapping the water and well, her elbows stuff. her elbows pretty similar and stuff and again she's pretty self-taught so i think there's definitely some efficiencies she could gain um mm -hmm. but she definitely is one of those people that just is an annoying fish that swims back and <laughs> forth and hasn't been in the pool for six months but somehow swims for the full hour and isn't winded and so uh -huh. but, but yeah i definitely Molly, wanted, in, go ahead where in jersey are you based molly uh well i'm from Huntington county so like the far west side um yeah. But we're, we're on the road so much, and I think actually, I was going to say New Paltz is sort of on the way up to Canada when we're, we're heading up there, so we might have oh. to... Uh, we might have to try and connect. I know your schedule's busy, Terry, but we'll, we'll try and... and we, have, we have six coaches here at our studio. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I would love to see the actual spot you're working to, even mm -hmm. if we don't connect with you. So yeah, we'll definitely be in touch with that. Talk about a small pool. I've done a lot of swimming in a pool that's uh, 8 by 16. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Now, do you do you have the pool treadmills too there, or what do you got? No, no, just you know, just the, the pool with the current. Goggles and swimsuit, Peter. Yes, Goggles right, right. No equipment. People right. don't come. <laughs> people don't come to our studio to run in the pool. They come to swim. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for writing the book. I'll also link to the the book um, as well, so there'll be lots of links in there. All right, um, but I'll let you guys go. We've taken up a lot of time. I hope to see you again in person. If not, uh, we'll we'll try and Skype again in the future. As always, thanks so much for tuning into this episode of the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Uh, please let us know what you thought about it, how it's impacted you, or changed the way you're training. Uh, you can let us know in the comments over at consummateathlete.com, or you could let us know over Twitter at Molly J. Herford and at Peter Glassford. And of course, if you liked the episode, please leave us a review over in iTunes. That would be super helpful. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great week, and we will see you next time.